Wonderful to be with you all. Grateful to, uh, to talk tonight on that most basic and fundamental question. Is Jesus the only way? That is the question I've been asked to address. And the answer is a simple and unequivocal yes. I think we're done. 40 minutes now of Q&A, right? There it is. The answer is yes, he is the only way. No, but in all seriousness, uh, it's, it's a critical question. It's one we have to think through. Um, and it's also one that there's certainly not universal agreement among folks when it comes to that question of whether or not Jesus is the only way. Even sadly, among professed Christians, there tends to be a lot of confusion on this question. So not only is it a hotly debated question, it can be a deeply divisive question. So I even remember back in the days when uh, I was a lay pastor, when I was just a, I was an elder at my church in Louisville, but uh, I didn't work for the church. You know, I had, a, I had a normal job. I was working for Merrill Lynch, and I was going in for a performance review, and uh, I happened to be talking to my manager, doing the review, and we we're exchanging those pleasantries, going back and forth for a minute. And I just happened to mention that I was actually going to be preaching at church that Sunday. And uh, he's like, oh, you know, that's great. I've, I've always thought preachers would make the best financial advisors. You know, they have such a way with people. They, they can be charismatic. They're such great storytellers. And we're thinking, oh, my word, I'm not really a great storyteller. And the fact that he thinks of preachers as storytellers is, is sad. Oh, that's kind of lamentable. But we're going in. I thought, well, but hey, listen, he was, so he was a Reformed Jew. And I thought, well, maybe I can use this as a gospel opportunity. So as I was sitting with the manager, I said, well, you know, in some ways, financial advising is, is a bit like, like pastoring. You know, because in financial advising, you sit down with someone and you receive sort of their financial condition and you assess that condition. You sort of note where the pitfalls and the challenges are. And then you try to sort of pave a way through to more financial security. And I said, you know, pastoring and preaching can be a lot like that. I try to help people know something about God and about their precarious position apart from God and outside the grace of God, and then I point them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, I don't know if that analogy had the intended effect, or maybe it did, um, because at the conclusion of that, he was rather horrified, and he just looked at me point blank and said, you're not actually trying to convert people, are you? And he meant that as uh, it was not so much a question as it was a statement. Um, he, in that, I had just confirmed his greatest fear, right? That I was, I was one of those kind of Christians. One of those Christians who doesn't and won't respect others' personally held beliefs. The kind who will insensitively interfere in other people's business and arrogantly presume that you've got to think like me or else. Like that's the impression he sadly had in his mind at that moment. Uh, point being, it is scandalous in today's pluralistic and sort of relativistic age, it is scandalous to contend for one religious truth over and against other religious truths, right? That smacks of arrogance and pride and, and disrespect. Even worse, you know, some will have said that, that to hold out one religious truth over and against other religious truths, well, that in fact incites violence. And even increasingly in this country, it's being seen as a form of hate speech. So with such cultural headwinds, uh, sort of forcing the church, even here in America, to sort of reassess their convictions, it does beg that question, is Jesus the only way to God? 
Uh, because if you hold that conviction, uh, no doubt you found how unpalatable it is in the eyes of many you, you, uh, you speak with and talk to. So historically, there are three different camps when it comes to answering that question. Is Jesus the only way to God? And because I really don't want to sit and listen to myself talk this entire time, I'm just going to stop right now. Does anyone happen to know what those three camps are? Or one of those three camps? Is there, is there only one way to God? How have different people answered this question? So universalism, okay, is that Jacob? Yeah, that's Jacob. Okay, universalism, that's going to be one answer, right? We're going to think about that. Anyone know any others? There's Christianity, okay. <laughs> Jacob, is that Jacob again? Boldly saying Christianity, not universalism. Yeah, there's Christianity, and there's what we're going to think about, sort of exclusivism. We're going to think about that some. And then there's another position um, that's sort of in between the two. Anyone know what that position is? It's not universalism. It's not the kind of exclusivism that, that my Jewish boss was really offended by. Yeah, it's inclusivism. It's inclusivism. That's sort of that, that, that middling category. So we're going to spend a few, minute and think, a few minutes, and we're going to walk just through these three categories. So you have a point of reference. I think this is going to help you as you talk with others and even as you read and reflect uh, things you come across. So the, that first position, Jacob noted, is universalism. So in this position, right, they, uh, those who espoused universalism would treat religion um, like a river, and religions all are finally drinking from that same river, albeit from different cups. So you'll have the Christian cup coming into that river, you've got the Buddhist cup, you've got the Muslim cup, etc. But at the end of the day, you're all drawing water out of the same river. And that's actually the analogy that Gandhi used. Um, it's what he taught. Basically, all religions speak of the same essence. They finally arrive in the same place even if they take different forms along the way, right? Even those cups take different forms. So it's another way of saying we're all ascending the same mountain. We're taking different paths to get there, but we're eventually going to land in the same place. It's the same mountain. Um, so it's uh, actually what John uh, Godfrey Sachs's poem, I don't know if any of you know this poem, The Blind Men and the Elephant. You may have heard of this poem or you may have heard it referenced at times. Um, it's a poem where you've got these six blind men of Indistan, and they want to learn what an elephant is like, these blind men do. And so each one explores a different part of the animal, and thus each one is going to describe that animal in a different way. So the one who examines the elephant's side describes the elephant like a wall. The one who examines the elephant from its tusk will describe it as a spear. The one who looks at it from the standpoint of the, from the trunk, grabs that trunk, will describe it as a snake. The one who grabs the tail will call it a rope. Um, the one who grabs a leg will call it a tree. And so, so it goes. And so the poem ends and says, And so these men of Indistan disputed loud and long. Each, in his own opinion, exceeded stiff and strong. Though each was partly in the right, and all were in the wrong. Well, Sachs was actually trying to make a theological point with that poem. So people argue about religion, he's saying, like blind men with the elephant. 
and they prate about like the elephant, and they prate about as those who have not yet seen it, who don't truly grasp it. And so what he's saying is, listen, we've all got different perspectives, and we're going to come to different conclusions, and yet at the same time, he's like, we're all describing the same thing. It's all an elephant at the end of the day. It's all the same thing. And so it is with religion, he was saying, whether you've got Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, right? It's just different ways of describing the same reality. And in Christian circles, right, this has been espoused by, uh, by some. So you've got guys like John Hick. John Hick, if you know that name, he's a philosopher. He actually at one point was an evangelical Christian. He was an university worker. So university worker with college students there in England. And as he was working with students, he was coming across Hindu students and Buddhist students and he was recognizing, wow, a lot of these students are really pious. They're really serious about the religion. They're really good people. And he came just to basically question, hey, listen, they're really sincere in their faith. Am I really willing to say that their faith is wrong, that they're condemned because they don't believe in Jesus? Uh, and he abandoned uh, that exclusivity. And he would famously say that God has many names, right? Their experiences would be equally valid as his. Um, so, so Hick sort of is the philosopher that many think of with universalism, but actually you may not know Mother Teresa, believe it or not, was a universalist. So Mother Teresa was once asked if she was about the conversion of others, and she famously responded, yes, I convert. I convert you to be a better Hindu, or a better Muslim, or a better Protestant, or a better Catholic, or a better Parsi, or a better Sikh, or a better Buddhist, and after you have found your God, it is for you to do what God wants you to do. So right there, you're getting universalism uh, from Mother Teresa. And that is how I was raised. So some of you will know I was raised Unitarian Universalist. And that universalist is exactly what, as it suggests in the name, right? 31 flavors, it doesn't really matter what you believe, all religions land us in the same place. And there's that clear link between universalism and a kind of religious pluralism that many of us know today, where no one religion can claim a kind of pride of place, can claim unique authority. Uh, therefore, it doesn't really matter what you believe. Once you accept that premise, then it doesn't really matter what you believe, because all worldviews, all religions are fundamentally, they're, they're equally valid. So in the end of the day, just choose the one that's right for you, is how many think today. Just choose the one that's right for you. And once you make that jump, then religion is merely a matter of preference. And as Americans, right, in this world, we, we totally get preference. When it comes to preferences, we know, like, we can choose our college, we can choose our cars, we can choose our majors, we can choose the color of our phones, we can choose our cellular provider, we can choose at Sam's Club, like, 50 versions of cereal, right? We have choice out our ears. We get choice. And so for us, it's no different. Yeah, we get to choose a God. We get to choose religion, because we think of it as a preference. We think of it as a taste and as a style like that. So uh, Marilyn Monroe, famous American theologian, right? Marilyn Monroe. Uh, she was once asked about her belief in God. And she replied with a bit of a flirtatious grin. She said, I believe in everything. Just a little bit. And that kind of summarizes, I think, for many, the, uh, what many think, what many believe. I.e., in universalism, there's nothing unique about Christ. If there is a heaven, we all universally will get there one way or another. So that's one answer to the question, is Jesus the only way? They'll be like, oh, no, all ways are equally good. There is the inclusivist 
position, though. That's the second one. Um, and this comes about because most Christians recognize universalism isn't, that's not super tenable because the Bible talks a lot about Jesus and the importance of Jesus. And so to say there's no distinction between Jesus and Christianity and all other religions, well, that's a hard one. Um, so they want to affirm that Jesus is important, that Christ is necessary. They want to affirm that salvation is in no other name. Um, but the question for them is, do people actually have to hear about Christ and believe in Christ in order to be saved? So they'll go to the classic questions, the inclusivists will, and they'll be thinking, oh, you know, what about the baby in the womb? What about the one who was born with limited intellectual capacities? What about the proverbial man on the island? Um, or the, the sort of righteous pagan, right? This person who lives a good life, but never comes into contact with the gospel. And so to them, they're going to look at questions of justice and fairness and their notions of love, and they're going to wonder, okay, is it consistent to condemn people like that? And so what they seek to do is carve out this middling position. And they're going to say, inclusivists will say, Christ is absolutely necessary for salvation, which a universalist would never say. They'll affirm that, but they'll say it's not necessary that one hears and believes in Christ in order to be saved. So, so long as one acts in accordance with the light they have, with the knowledge they have, with the wisdom and, and the truth that they've been shown, as long as they act and live honorably to the truth that they know, right, that's enough. That will be sufficient. So philosophically, for the few of you who get excited about philosophical categories, they're going to say Christ is ontologically necessary, but not epistemologically necessary, i.e. Christ, person, being, essence, his work, that is necessary. He alone saves. So that's, like, that's ontology, being, essence, the person, that's necessary. Epistemology is, is knowledge of. But does one actually have to know about Christ? Does one actually have to hear about Christ in order to be saved? And that's what the inclusivists will say, not necessarily no. No, they, they don't have to. They'll be saved by Christ even if they don't know Christ. That's where the inclusivist is going to go. Um, and so they will have a category where the righteous pagan, right, the man on the island, can still get to heaven. And the only way they can get there is through Christ. So they will affirm that even if that person never knows it's through Christ that got them to heaven. And so, believe it or not, in Christian circles, this has been, and at times is, and is even today, still in some circles, a pretty popular and a common opinion and position. So this is basically the position of Roman Catholicism. Since Vatican II, this is like where Roman Catholicism goes. So if you know Karl Rahner, uh, who's a pretty famous Catholic theologian, German Catholic theologian, he, had a, he has this category of the anonymous Christian. So there are all these anonymous Christians. They're living according to the light they have, but at the end of the day, they're Christians. They just don't really know it anonymously. Uh, so that's, that's a lot of Roman Catholicism today, which is one of the reasons why you just don't find Roman Catholic missionaries like you used to, because they, they have this more inclusivist uh, belief. Uh, you actually find it in, in evangelical circles. Um, so if you know C.S. Lewis, actually in The Last Battle, uh, you will see this in some of his writings where the soldier Emmeth 
who served that demon uh, Tash. He's welcomed into heaven. Emeth is welcomed into heaven, though he never worshipped Aslan. Remember, Aslan is the Christ figure. Um, and in Lewis's book, because the young man believed he was worshipping a true God, Aslan said to Emeth, Child, all this service thou hast done to Tash, so what he did to Tash, I account, Aslan says, as service done to me. So basically, again, you're seeing there in Lewis, whatever knowledge or revelation they had, if they were acting in accordance with that, faithfully to that, um, yeah, that's sufficient. So other religions, in that sense, can have salvific value. Even if they didn't know Christ, right, such religion and such devotion, Jesus will account to him. Um, so you'll find this in the writers of E.P. Sanders, Clark Pinnock. He'll particularly hold like postmortem salvation as one way to get through this. We all have a chance to believe in life after death. Even interesting, J.I. Packer and John Stott, who I love so much of their writings, they flirt with this position. They don't rule it, you know, sort of out of hand. They say it's very possible, though they claim there's no scriptural evidence for it specifically. They flirt with it, say it's possible. Um, but even closer to home, so Robert Schuller, uh, some of you will know that name. If you, maybe if, if you're young, you may not know that name. He was a pastor of Crystal Cathedral in Southern California, uh, famous pastor, not really an evangelical in any sense of the word. He did an interview, though, with a famous evangelist. And in that interview, the evangelist said to Robert Schuller when they were on a television interview, he said, I think that everybody that loves or knows Christ, whether they are conscious of it or not, they are members of the body of Christ. Because God is calling people out of this world for his name, whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the non-believing world, they are members of the body of Christ because they've been called by God. They may not know the name of Jesus, but they know they need something they don't have, and they turn to the only light they have, and I think that they are saved and they're going to be with us in heaven. So that's what this evangelist said. Now, Schuler was surprised by the response. And he was anxious for clarification. So Schuler said, what I hear you saying is that it's possible for Jesus Christ to come into human hearts and soul and life, even if they've been born in darkness and they've never had any exposure to the Bible. Is that the correct interpretation of what you're saying? Yes, it is, the evangelist said in very decided tones. At which point Schuler is just tripping over himself in excitement. He says, I'm so thrilled to hear what you say, this. There is a wideness to God's mercy, Schuler said, to which this evangelist added, yes, there is, there definitely is. Any of you know who that evangelist was? It was Billy Graham, which might surprise us. So that's, that's, that was Billy Graham's position, at least later in life. That was his position. Now, maybe you can attribute that to the confusion of an older man. But, you know, there is inclusivism right there in the heart of the SBC. Um, you can be saved by Christ without ever hearing the gospel of Christ or placing your faith in Christ. Now, the last view, third, is exclusivism. And this, I would suggest to you, that's the historic position of the Christian church. It's especially the position of, like, historic Protestantism and Reformed traditions and exclusivism, as the name kind of implies, just holds that one can only be saved by Christ, 
But in order to be saved by Christ, one has to hear the gospel of Christ and repent and believe in the gospel of Christ. So Christ is necessary for salvation, and hearing him and believing in him, knowing him, right, that too is necessary. So general revelation, which is what many think, well, not many, inclusivists tend to think general revelation is sufficient to save. So as long as we have the light of general revelation, we can be saved. Now, Romans 1 and Romans 3 present a serious problem with that view, if you just look at those two chapters in particular. But they'll say, listen, that's enough. And the exclusivists will say, no, read Romans 1, read Romans 3, like general revelation teaches us there is a God, but does not teach us who that God savingly is in Christ. For that, we need special revelation. We need someone to preach the gospel to us, and we need to hear and respond to that. So those are the three positions. Any comments or questions on that? It's the headiest part of the whole talk, just if you're at all worried. You're like, I got fun stories of history and missionaries two weeks ago, and now I'm in ontology and epistemology. What is Brad doing? Okay. Any questions? Yeah, Ed. No, we never used the Bible. So I had was raised in a Unitarian church. I had heard some stories of Jesus, like sweet stories of Jesus, kind things Jesus did, um, but we never read the Bible in church. So when I was first exposed to Christianity, a Christian gave me the Bible, and it was first time I ever opened it, first time I'd ever read it, first time I'd actually ever heard Jesus from his own mouth, so to speak. And I realized, wow, the Jesus I was exposed to, what little bit it was, was not the Jesus of the Bible at all. Yeah, yeah, so we didn't really look at the Bible much. The Bible is being used there, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think one of the risks with a lot of views is um, the challenge is we have to let the Bible speak for itself. And all of us have a temptation to have a canon within a canon. So like we have a desire for a particular view to be correct. And so when we go to the Bible, we're looking for texts that support that view. And we tend to inherently silence and suppress texts that disagree with that view. So just speaking bluntly, like I think most of us are saved as Arminians. We're like, I chose God. God didn't choose me. I made a decision. I bowed the knee. I chose God. I chose to follow Christ. And then we read about election and God choosing us and God working in us. We're like, uh, I don't Like Romans 9, I don't know, but Romans 10 I get. Like, yeah, I totally get Romans 10. Now, Romans 11 is a different question. But like, I think we just have that temptation. So for the first 10 years of my Christian life, even longer, I'm like, when I got to those areas of sovereignty, I'm like, I don't know how to think about this. I just, you know, I know I made a decision for Jesus. And everything hinged on that decision is how I would think about it. So I had my own kind of canon within a canon. I think we just do that. And the risk is that we let the world's notions of fairness and justice, we let that govern how we think about fairness and justice. So even the concept of a righteous pagan, well, there really isn't such thing. But it's hard for us because people think of people as generally righteous and genuinely good. And so I think we just, it's hard because we, we can let those 
those categories inform our reading, and we can let them govern. And so we'll elevate some texts, we'll silence other texts. Now, they'll even look to, like, Cornelius. And they'll say, look, he was a devout, God-fearing man. Right there he was. Like, he didn't know about Jesus, and he was a devout, God-fearing man. Now, I think as you keep reading Acts, and we'll think about this, there's a problem with that reading. Because if that was true, then Peter didn't need to go to him. But, I mean, they'll, they'll look at things like that. Yeah. Any other comments, questions on this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so this is where even those who hold to sort of exclusivism, and I don't mean any offense, but if you read old theologians, they would have the categories of infants and idiots. And they didn't mean that disparagingly. They just meant those who were young and those who didn't have the intellectual capacity to hear and understand clearly a gospel message. And what the Lord did with them, there were differing camps. Some would say in his grace and mercy, all are saved. Um, Others would say, "Mm, I don't feel comfortable saying that. But I can say from Scripture, the judge of all the earth will do right. And when I am in heaven, I will look at every one of his judgments and I will pronounce them just. Even if on this side, I don't know quite what that means and what it will look like. And so different Christians have answered that question differently when it comes to like age of accountability questions. Yeah, yeah. And like our statement of faith as a church doesn't walk into that. So if you've read John MacArthur, Safe in the Arms of God, John MacArthur will say like, you know, any miscarriage, all those children, they're in heaven. John Piper has actually argued pretty, uh, I've tended to be in the, the God of all the earth will do right. Like, I'm just not quite sure. You can look at David when he loses the child with Bathsheba, and David, some would say, David's implying he's going to see that child in heaven again. Others would say that's not really what he's saying. That's a text some will go to. Some will look at Revelation. Piper had a fascinating I can't remember, it was like 15 years ago, a fascinating uh, treatment of, of the latter half of Revelation answering that question. I don't, know where I, could, I don't know where to tell you to find it. I just remember hearing him talk about it once. But yeah, Christians have differing opinions there. Yeah. 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 Great question. Um, so... Uh, Catholicism is basically inclusivism, or depending on the brand, it could be universalism, like Mother Teresa. Um, if you're talking about uh, Protestantism, like you think of, um, if you're thinking of sort of the old mainline denominations, uh, Presbyterian, like Methodist, um, Congregational, or Baptist, it honestly depends on whether or not they're historically. Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, or whether or not they're more like progressive, yeah, um, they're more moderate, more, yeah, so, so it just depends on the church. Most of Methodism in the United States would be inclusivist to universalist, is the reality, most of it. Now, Methodism in Africa would not be. Um, Episcopalianism would be inclusivist to universalist, um, though Episcopalianism is just American Anglicanism. So the Anglican church. So 
but Anglicanism in the UK is split. It's kind of different places. Anglicanism in, in Africa is more conservative, be more exclusivist in their readings. Anglicanism in Australia, more exclusivist, because the reality is none of the moderates who changed their views wanted to go to the penal colony in Austri Australia, and they didn't want to go south. They wanted to stay in nice England, and so their views didn't migrate to the south or to the Pacific. Um, so it really just depends. I always think it's good to assume what every human heart assumes, that at the end of the day, we're all good with God, and God's good with us. So I just assume everyone's a universalist, and just start there. And you'll find if you start there, um, you'll probably be better positioned to talk with your friends. And uh, yeah, that's probably better. It's just a, a good assumption to have. Other questions on this? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so I think what we want to be, it's a great question, and I think we want to be really clear that the Bible speaks to general revelation, which speaks to God's power and his wisdom, those things that are um, sort of understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse, as Paul says. So does general revelation exist? Psalm 19, right? Heavens declare the glory of God's God's claim the work of his hand. Like, yeah, that's true. Now the question is, though, is that general revelation sufficient for salvation? And what we don't want to do is we don't want to pit the Bible against itself like it's obviously contradictory. What we want to say is, okay, general revelation is true. Special revelation is true. So how do we understand these texts in a way that's consistent, in a way that Paul seems to understand? Because he certainly affirms both, general revelation and special revelation. And as you read Paul, you come to see general revelation is there. And the reality is general revelation teaches everyone that there is a God and even affirms in their own consciences that they've rebelled against him in one way or another. And only special revelation can tell us how we can be reconciled back to that God. And that's really what Romans kind of helps spell out for us. So I think there we just, we don't want to pit the Bible against itself. We want to trust the Bible's one story and it's consistent with itself. And so, okay, how do we make sense of these passages consistently? And I think Paul helps us do that. I'm going to keep going this time because what time am I supposed to be done? Well, okay, what time am I? I'm assuming I'm not teaching for the 45 minutes. What time am I supposed to be done? All right. Okay, let's go. Um, so, all right. So what does the Bible teach on this? So I've just laid out the three views. Um, and I'm just going to share with you what I shared at the very beginning. All right? Simple answer. I think the Bible clearly teaches exclusivism. Now, I have to say, I actually don't like the term exclusivism that much. It's a pejorative term. Um, and we have to know Christianity is the most inclusive religion, I think, in the whole world. So one of the beautiful things about Christianity that we often take for granted and we don't carefully consider is that all in Christianity are invited to come and all are equally welcomed. So Galatians 
There is, Paul says, neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. In the context of salvation, he's saying, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs. He's saying you're equally heirs according to the promise. Now, in the religions of, of Paul's day, that would have been unheard of. The idea that both men and women, that slave and free, right, that Jew and Gentile would be equally, like on the same par in a religious system, they just had no context for that. But that's exactly the inclusivism that Christianity does hold out. So think about other religions. Hinduism has what? It's caste system, right? Buddhism has its various stages of enlightenment. Even Christian scientists, if you've studied much about sort of, or a Scientology, like if you want to get to the higher levels, you've got to pay a lot of money. You've got to have a lot of influence to get to those higher levels in order to sort of get the blessing that comes as a result. Even Catholicism, with its own merit system, with its indulgences, with the way you pay money to get yourself out of purgatory faster, which is still a teaching of the church, they still collect money for those purposes. I mean, just not, what if you're poor? What do you do in other world religions if you're poor? What do you do in Scientology if you're poor? What do you do if you're poor when you're facing purgatory? What do you do if you're in the wrong caste? What do you do if you're immoral or unenlightened? Like only Christianity offers salvation as a free gift to all, equally, without regard to wealth or standing or power or privilege or even morality. All are equally welcomed to come. So you've got like prince and pauper, self-righteous and unrighteous, all have that same standing as they flee to Christ in faith. So yes, is Christianity exclusive and that it's uniquely and solely about Jesus? It is. But when we say that, we have to know it's the most inclusive of religions. So I, that's where I struggle sometimes with the term. In the same way, I don't like the term limited atonement. There's nothing limited about Christ's atonement. When he died, he died definitively, though. So I'll sometimes speak of definite atonement. Um, he'll speak to, uh, it'll speak to that. Now, that's, that's often a different subject. But you can talk about Christ's you know, particularism, if you prefer that over exclusivism. But that confuses people. So let's just stick with exclusivism, all right? But I just want you to hear, as we use that word, it is a wonderfully inclusive faith. And the first century church grasped that. And their gatherings reflected that in many ways, as ours ought increasingly to reflect too. At any rate, so where do we see some of these things in Scripture? Well, actually, exclusivism is rooted in the fact that there is just one God. So one God who alone demands and deserves worship. Everything else is a lie. So Isaiah 55, 22, turn to me, Right, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. So right there, you're seeing how exclusivism is grounded in monotheism. Turn to me, not Allah, not Brahma, not Shiva, like turn to me, not pleasure, not nature, right? Don't turn to those things. Turn to me, because I alone am God. 
or Psalm 121, a psalm you probably well know. You even probably remember, some of you will know this, when the psalmist says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Have you ever bothered to ask yourself, why does the psalmist say, I lift my eyes to the hills? Are they pretty hills? They have like nice trees on them? Are they grand hills, big hills? Like, is there majesty and, and grandeur about them? Is that, is that why he says, I, I look and uh, I lift my eyes to the hills? Well, no. Hills where were all the surrounding peoples and nations, that the hills where they would place their idols and their altars to their gods. So when the psalmist says, I look to the hills, he's saying, I'm looking to the hills. I can see where those idols and altars to false gods are. They're the constant threat to me that I will think my help comes from them. But the psalmist says, therefore, I don't look to the hills and trust in those idols. I rather look to the maker of heaven and earth, right? The one who governs all, is sovereign over all, is exclusively uh, you know, Lord over all, right? That's what the psalmist is saying. So that exclusivism is grounded in monotheism. Um, so to choose God has always meant in the Bible to reject the alternative. Choosing God has always meant to reject the alternative. So just what did Joshua say to the Israelites? How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. That's the decision, right? It's one or the other. It's not both. Uh, it's what Jesus taught. So you just look at the Gospel of John, all throughout John. One of the, the famous verses, if there's a proof text for exclusivity, it's usually John 14, 6, right? We know that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Or John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, if you go back to the start of John 10, right, everyone who tries to enter in, not through the door, right, they're unwelcomed because you can only enter in through the door. Or even that verse we know so well, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But of course, if you keep reading verse 18, which we often forget, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So right there, I think, classic text that will speak, not only is Christ necessary for salvation, but belief in him. That's what John is helping us see, is also necessary for salvation. So this is what Peter and John preached. One of the best ways to know, like, okay, did Jesus really say that stuff? Did the, did the apostles really understand them properly? What did they preach in the book of Acts? Well, when Peter and John are before the Jewish establishment, the scribes, the elders, right, the high priests, when they're all gathered and they're like, would you stop preaching in Jesus' name? What does Peter say in Acts 4.12? There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So just consider who they're talking to. Like, these are experts in the law. These are what they would have thought as their Jewish brothers and sisters. Like, 
They've got shared family. They have shared history. They have a shared Bible. And Peter's not like, hey, you know what? This is just a minor squabble about Jesus. It's all the same thing. We're all going the same place. No, for Peter, if they don't believe in Jesus, they're going to hell, which is why he will continue to preach that gospel message. So he didn't just say Judaism is another way to God. He's like, Judaism is actually false worship to a false god is what they're going to say because it doesn't understand Jesus. We talked a little bit about Cornelius, you know, how the Bible describes him as a devout man. Um, he's, if you want to think of the classic righteous pagan, like that seems to be Cornelius, someone who genuinely had some understanding of God from general revelation, uh, no doubt, maybe even some aspect of special revelation, um, but he clearly never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that was sufficient, well, then it wouldn't explain why in Acts 11, Peter has to go all the way to Cornelius and break social customs by entering into the home of a Gentile. And then in Acts eleven fourteen, declare to you a message by which you will be saved. So that's what Peter knew he had to do. He had to declare this message to this God-fearer by which he then would be saved. So Cornelius obviously wasn't saved, though he was a devout and righteous man and a pious man and a godly man, but he wasn't saved until he heard about the God-man, right, Jesus Christ. And only then, by hearing and believing, could he be saved. It's what Paul preached. So when you get a pagan Philippian jailer, ask that most basic question, the softball question we all would love to hear, what must I do to be saved? He doesn't say like, ah, oh, just add Jesus to Mars and the other pantheon of gods you've got there. No, he says, not be true to what you know, right? But believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Acts 16.31 or Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's what the Apostle John taught. We have seen and testified the Father has sent his Son to be Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Right? I could just keep going, but that seems to be the overwhelmingly clear consensus of Scripture. Any questions on that before I think about a few implications? Yeah, Jacob. Well, Job clearly, um, as you get to the end of the book, he is, he is being given some form of very special revelation because God is effectively saying, hey, bro, like, where were you when the moon was formed and when the earth and the land and its habitation and all the rest? Like, where were you when I created all these things? Where were you when I did all these things? Like, you really, you're complaining about me, but you really don't know uh, you don't know the full extent and the full scope of it. So there is, I think there's both an element to which Job knew general revelation by witness of being a creature in this world, but he had very direct special revelation. Job may well be the first book of the Bible, like the first book written. And I think part of what Job is already helping us see, it's confusing because it's in the middle of our Old Testament, and so we, we don't think of it that way. Job is already preparing us for the idea that there can be a righteous sufferer. 
So in that sense, Job is really preparing us for Jesus uh, in a wonderful way. That's a different message, though. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, any other questions on this? Just teaching of exclusivity? Okay. Then let, let's think about some implications. Um, so what are some implications this has for Christian mission? Uh, a few. I think it has implications for gospel, the necessity of the gospel to go forth, the urgency of that gospel, uh, the clarity of that gospel. Those are a few things I think I just want to spin out for a minute. So if this is true, exclusivity is true, then there is gospel first, gospel necessity. Because if particular faith in Christ is not necessary, then it just begs the question, why go through all the effort? So someone give me an example of a missionary that Todd talked about two weeks ago. Give me a name. C.T. Studd. Yeah, he's got great quotes. Yeah, that guy was a stud. Yeah, yeah. Give me another name. Okay. And what, what's one or two things about his life? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. Well, you know more about his life than I do. Um, if you read many missionary biographies, what do you come to find? Well, their lives often entail great suffering. They did what they did at tremendous personal cost. So why go through all that? Why spend all the time? Why bear the reproach of men? Why bear the scorn of family and the scorn of the world? Why give up health? Why give up wealth? Why expose yourself to disease, to loneliness, to depression, to the loss of loved ones? When you read about Judson and the wives he went through, I mean, goodness gracious. Like, why go through all that? Well, you don't. If, if it's not necessary to preach the gospel, if you think people can be saved on the basis of the light they have, you shouldn't go. There's no sense in going. Not at that cost. But... If that is the only way in which people can come to genuinely know Jesus, then absolutely it is worth that effort and work. So this is where, you know, Paul in Romans 10, when he talks about how beautiful it is, right, the feet of those who, who preach the good news, um, we always have to remember that God ordains the ends as well as the means. So yeah, Romans 9 comes before Romans 10. He ordains the ends. He is sovereign in salvation. But then he calls us to take the gospel to those who need to hear of salvation, which is Romans 10. So that's where, again, you just think Peter and Cornelius. You think of that example. So, I mean, if you, when you read Acts 10 and 11, it has you scratching your head. This is the most convoluted way to see someone saved. Cornelius has a vision. He sends men 30 miles away to go talk to a guy named Peter. Peter has a vision that he needs to accept these guys. And then he accepts them. And they say, oh, now you have to leave with us and go 30 miles back and talk to a Gentile. And so Peter's like, okay. And so he takes some men and now they go 30 miles back the other way to go meet Cornelius, to have Cornelius explain his vision, to then have Peter share the gospel. 
Well, an angel just could have given him the gospel. God could have just saved him, poof. But the whole point of that story is, well, it's in part, there's something happening in salvation history with Jews sharing the gospel, not just with Jews, but with Gentiles. So you're, that's part of what's happening. But it's also just underscoring the fact that the message requires a messenger. There's gospel necessity in going and in preaching the good news. That's why there's all the fuss. It's just to underscore that is exactly what Christians do. It comes, the, comes through human agents, the gospel does. And that's the imperative to go. Because if we don't go, then how are they to get to God? Is what the Bible would press us to wonder. I love the words of Spurgeon. Someone once asked Spurgeon if the heathen who have never heard the gospel will be saved. And in classic Spurgeon fashion, Spurgeon says, well, the question to me is more whether those who have the gospel and fail to give it to those who have not the gospel, whether they themselves can be saved. Right? So he just flips the question on its head in a way Spurgeon can wonderfully do. But that's that, it's that imperative, right? We who have that news ought to go. Uh, and share that news. And that's the imperative of exclusivism. But it's, it's not just the necessity of it. There's an urgency to that as well. Um, like to go now. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians, right? Today is the day of salvation. So we love, some Christians love to talk about the second coming of Christ. And yet it's good to remember as much as we might talk about the second coming of Christ, we long for the second coming of Christ. Jesus talks about the second coming of Christ. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we celebrate that coming when he will take us and that banquet feast will be an eternal one. Great, that's wonderful, but how many people have never heard about the first coming of Christ as much as we're thinking about the second coming of Christ? So the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. That's Carl F.H. Henry, if you know that name. That was one of his famous quotes. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. So that speaks to the urgency we have, right, to, to take this message, to not presume upon the days we have, to be praying regularly for those opportunities so that when we have that time to speak with a friend or a family member, we can share the gospel. So, you know, I know with my, my mom's third husband, uh, he was so antagonistic to the gospel um, and I shared it with him, and he didn't want to hear it, and he was very clear. He didn't want ever, never wanted to hear me pray, never wanted to have dialogue and conversation. Um, but when he's on his deathbed, like, you know, what am I thinking about? I'm thinking about, like, yeah, I mean, he's going to meet his maker very soon. Like, I need to get there and make sure I share the gospel with him one more time because that day is fast approaching. And the reality is we don't know when that day is for any of us, let alone our friends or family, so we take the opportunity now to share and there's that urgency. But not only is there that necessity and urgency, but there is a need for clarity. Um, you know, one of the things, if you study evangelicalism, if you looked at it over the last 70 years, um, evangelicalism has basically taken the approach that doctrine divides, so then let's gather around mission. We can all agree that mission is a good thing. So let's focus on that, and let's ignore doctrine because that divides. But if you know the history of the last 70 years, you've recognized that's actually a failed endeavor because message and mission are inextricably linked. You can't separate them, message and mission. So we need to be exceedingly clear on what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't. So if you've become a member of this church and I did your member interview and hopefully if another did it, 
you should have been asked the question, what's the gospel in 60 seconds or less? And some of you are thinking that's just the pastor's way of putting terror in your bones, which is not it at all. That's our way of ensuring that you have a clear understanding of the gospel. And we're not even finally trying to test your own like theological acumen or whatever, but we're trying to make sure if you have an opportunity to share the gospel quickly with someone, are you able to do it? Do you feel confident that you could just in 60 seconds, share what is the good news of Christianity? Or do you feel inadequate and like, oh, I don't know what I would say. Where would I start? Where would I go? I'm not really sure. So if the time came, you just wouldn't say anything. Well, no, you want to have that clarity in what the gospel is, but you also want the clarity in what the gospel isn't. Um, so how is belief in Jesus different than submission to Allah? How is belief in Jesus different than following the Torah? Like that's, that's important that one knows. Um, if we are thinking about gospel clarity in the, in the work of missions, um, is the gospel calling us merely to make converts? Or are we to gather them into churches? Okay, well, may, okay, that's an important question. And if we're to gather them into churches, well, am I equipped to be a leader of a church? Well, if I'm not, am I on a team with one who's equipped to be a leader of a church? Right? That's, that's part of the gospel clarity we need as we seek to share and then gather Christians together. If you're going to a culture with a different language, how can you expect to have discussions of what the gospel is and isn't with people who already have worldviews established if you don't know their own language? So if they, have, they may have 30 words for God they have 30 different gods. You just grab one and hope it is close to the God of the Bible? Do you have to create a new word? How do you help them see that their notion of grace is actually like the Bible's notion of grace and it's not something else? Those are all things why you need gospel clarity, which is why if you're thinking about going to a context where you don't know the language, there's a good reason why you need to spend some time getting to learn the language. Um, and we need to be equipped uh, if you're thinking like about a maybe a random fourth, just going with the rhyming, obloquy, right? So ignominy, like reproach, disdain. Like that's another thing as Christians, we just have to be willing to bear. If you are going to share the gospel, I don't care where you do it. It could be in Morocco. It could be, you know, just down the street. You will bear the reproach of Christ for sharing it. So this is what the Romans were so frustrated because the Romans would look at the Christians and Emperor uh, Severus was like, hey, listen, I've heard of your Jesus, like great, I'll, I'll accept your Jesus and I'll put him on the shelf of my gods just to play it safe, but why won't you reciprocate? You won't take my gods with you. Because of course we understand we can't because God alone has called us how to be worshiped in through Jesus and that obviously bears reproach. It's always been scandalous. It's always been hard. And so as we think about missions, we just have to recognize that when we do missions and when we share the gospel, that reproach is always a part of the work. It will arouse suspicion. It will give offense. The early Christians knew this. So they weren't Christians because they'd never heard anything else. All the early Christians were converted from something else. And so when they were being converted and being called to one way, they knew what the other ways were. And yet they understood this was the one way I have to go. And yet you preach that message and you see what happens and you see the cost. And that's another thing 
the reproach, right? The shame, the humiliation, the scorn, the obloquy. There's your English word. There's your vocabulary for the day. How about that? How about that for fun? All right. Comments, questions on that? 8.12, so I'm close to 8.15.